We are in a brand new series that got kicked off last week. Pastor Mike Portland from Reality LA kicked off. The series is called Endure. And we picked 2 Timothy as a result of actually a time that we had gathering in a smaller group for a prayer night a few months back. And God kept directing our attention to the book of 2 Timothy and specifically the theme of endurance because of the challenging times that we find ourselves in when endurance is not necessarily a hallmark of the Christian faith that we see going on all around us. And this week we have a pretty interesting uh, peering into specifically what was going on in the life of this young uh, man named Timothy, who was really Paul's protege. Uh, Paul had planted the church in this really challenging city called Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. And Paul had handed off leadership of this church to this younger leader named Timothy. And this young leader had a tremendous amount of challenges, which we find out about in the book of First Timothy, which is simply just a letter that Paul wrote encouraging him. One of the things that it says in that letter, letter is, don't look, let anyone look down on you because you're young. So we know that he was dealing with some kind of like identity crisis issues, like leading older people and challenge. There was lots, lots of like doctrinal challenges going on in the community. People believing things that are not the gospel that Paul and Timothy have been teaching them to believe and making a lot of stirring within the community, a lot of challenges going on. But this week, we, we encounter a pretty interesting thing we didn't really understand until this point. In the letter of 2 Timothy, it appears that Paul is being canceled. <laughs> so my question for you, this little thought experiment this morning is, what would you do if the person you looked up to most in your life, your mentor, the person who is most responsible for shaping your worldview, what you do, maybe somebody who like taught you the craft or the thing that you do as your vocation now. What if you woke up one morning and took to Twitter as you do when you're sitting there in bed, right? Um, just me? Okay, cool. Uh, you scroll through Twitter and you find that your leader, your mentor, that person you look up to the most has been completely canceled. There are people calling them out. There are people distancing themselves from that person calling into question the legitimacy of everything that they have ever done or said. Good stuff has just completely been overshadowed by this new controversy. And it's not just random people calling your mentor out. It's people that you know and that also know your mentor very well. If something like this has ever happened to you or you can empathize, you might be able to start understanding what it must have been like for Timothy because Paul is writing from prison once again. Not the first time he's been in prison, probably the second, maybe even the third time that Paul has been in prison. And Timothy had been with him on all of his journeys. He had seen incredible things happen. He'd seen miracles and after that, he took over this role as pastor of this church in Ephesus. And some of Timothy's peers and a large portion of the church is saying, you know what? It's time to stop listening to Paul. It's time to distance ourselves from this guy. There's a reason that he's constantly in trouble with Rome. 
Here we find him in prison once again. No one knew Paul better than Timothy, and yet maybe Timothy was missing something. Maybe there was something to substantiate these claims. Maybe that there was something going on that Timothy didn't know about in Paul's life that these other people who were calling him out did. Timothy could have been thinking, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe I'm on the wrong side. Have I been deceived the whole time by this this eccentric, charismatic leadership personality, right? Maybe I'm betting on the wrong horse. And Timothy, more than anyone else probably, had a lot to lose with Paul being publicly denounced. His name would have been hyperlinked all over Paul's Wikipedia page. So if Timothy continues to defend Paul, then Paul's shame would follow Timothy everywhere he went. So in this letter, we're gonna see Paul actually taking this opportunity to get ahead of what he sees to be a potential path for Timothy down the road of shame and distancing himself. And he's gonna show us that the suffering that he's enduring is actually very consistent with the life of somebody who's dedicated their lives to living out the good news of Jesus. So he's going to encourage Timothy to persevere, knowing that God will be faithful to sustain him because of the gospel story. So we're going to read, and if you can, stand, please, as we read from 2 Timothy. We do this as a way of signifying with our bodies that what we're reading right now is not just man's words, but God's very word to us in this community. So 2, or, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verse 8 through 18 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You're all aware You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we look to you and we expect 
to hear your voice speaking to us by the power of your Holy Spirit because it is your Spirit who authored the words that we just read. And we know that it's through these words that we're continually nourished as followers of Jesus. I pray for everyone in this room who is experiencing Father's Day and it's a challenging day that you administer to them. I pray that anyone who's feeling uh, tempted to give up this morning, that you would speak to us and encourage us. I pray, Lord, that anyone who does not know you this morning would take one step closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thanks, everyone. So, Paul's first instruction to Timothy could possibly sum up this entire letter of 2 Timothy, and it is, do not be ashamed, in verse 8. Do not be ashamed, specifically of two things. First of all, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, which is the gospel, the news about Jesus, and do not be ashamed of me, of Paul, who's speaking. The reality is, Timothy has both of these associations, these relationships, both with Jesus and with Paul, that could potentially have brought him shame within his life. The reality is, and we learned a lot of this in our last series that we called Peculiar, the reality of aligning yourself with Jesus in the ancient Roman world was, in many people's estimation, being on the wrong side of history. The Roman Empire viewed Jesus as just a failed insurrectionist who was publicly shamed, and that's that. Throw it away with the annals of history. He died on a cross, the lowest form of torture and death reserved for the very lowest of society. And he was widely even known among the Jewish people as just another failed Messiah. And Pastor Ryan even reminded us a couple weeks ago that the first, the earliest depiction of Jesus's crucifixion that we have shows Jesus with the head of a donkey. You see it behind me. And as one Roman author even called Jesus that crucified jackass, right? So aligning yourself with Jesus in the ancient world was basically social suicide. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. But also he says, do not be ashamed of me. Paul is equating these two things for a reason. Now, we dealt with this back when we studied Ephesians last year, but there was a negative stigma constantly following Paul in his credibility because of his constant imprisonment. Can we trust anything that this guy is saying, even though he's constantly thrown in prison? Doesn't mean that he's taking the wrong turn some point in his life. Doesn't mean that we should be suspect of his credibility. And we take it for granted within the church, those who have been around Christian circles for a long time, that Paul was just thrown in prison a bunch of times, like that's where he goes to get his work done, right? Like, oh yeah, I need to write a couple of letters. I'm gonna take a writer's retreat in prison. And that's just where he goes. He's really productive there. 
But no, like a lot of the early church actually struggled with his influence and distanced themselves from him because of this. Because they lived in this very intensely honor-shame culture. Imagine if we brought a guest preacher in and we intro him, right? And we say, you know, after serving as a pastor for 10 years in, you know, New Jersey or somewhere, he did three years jail time and then he released a new book. Please welcome him, right? We'd be like, uh, well, can you go back to the last part where, <laughs> what the reason that Paul is in chains, what he wants us to understand, the reason that he's on death row right now, as this is the last letter that he would ever write, is not because he failed, but because his life is entirely devoted to his mission. But instead of justifying himself, instead of trying to retrace the entire history of what happened and, oh, it was so-and-so's fault and he wrongly accused me and yada, yada, he connects it to the will of God. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You see that? He is introducing himself as a prisoner, not of Rome, but of God himself. Because he knows that even in this circumstance, it is God's purpose that is being worked out in his life. And the word that he uses for shame is a very interesting word because it's a quarter of the usages of this word that he used for not being ashamed are actually found in this letter of 2 Timothy. A quarter of the usage of this entire word in the New Testament is found in this very short book of 2 Timothy. Paul feels that he is catching Timothy at a very pivotal point in his relationship with Jesus. He can, almost like when you tell a toddler not to do something and then you see like the glint in their eyes and they haven't even started going to do the thing that you told them not to do, but you can see it. You can see it like going on in their head. Paul is saying, do not be ashamed. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're about to do because everyone else is also doing it, right? He gives us these cautionary tales in verse 15. He says, all who are in Asia <laughs> have abandoned me. Now, I think Paul might have had some dramatic flair in saying that, but that's probably how he felt, right? Timothy was in Asia, right? So we know it wasn't like everyone, but it was probably more than 50% of the people who were encouraging Timothy now to distance himself from Paul. And he names two, two people in particular, these two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes. I've never met anyone with these names, probably because nobody wanted to name their kids this after this letter came out. But we also don't see any other mention of these guys in the New Testament because they dipped. They were gone. Timothy was a pastor in Asia, so we know that it wasn't everyone who had left Paul. But according to Paul, everyone, <laughs> everyone had abandoned him. And he's trying to get ahead of what he sees Timothy could potentially do if the shame became too great to bear. But he names this other guy named Onesephorus. And he uses the same word and he says, Onesephorus was not ashamed of me. But when I became a prisoner in Rome, this guy actually came and found me, which 
could have been a really difficult thing to do. They didn't exactly advertise where all of the prisoners were being held. And back in ancient society, it wasn't the job of the state to take care of prisoners of the state. It was actually the role of friends and family. So if this guy hadn't found Paul where he had been in prison, Paul probably wouldn't have been provided for at all. This guy went out of his way to find Paul, to associate with this man who had been once again thrown in prison and ask if there was anything that he could do. And the way that uh, Paul talks about it, it could have been not just this man, but his entire household that went to find Paul to refresh him. And so Paul says, may they find mercy. May they be blessed because they went out of their way to associate with somebody who had been disgraced by society. The far more common response today when the pressure gets turned up, when being associated with somebody who has a difficult reputation, when being associated with the Christian church, with the faith of Christianity, when it's in the news and people are misconstruing the faith and there are certain people that you would rather not be spokespeople for the faith are identifying with the church, the pressure for us is to say, yeah, those people are over here. I'm over here. We're, we're, not, we're not together. When being associated with the church becomes costly to our own reputation, we want to distance ourselves. We want to abandon those people, which is why, you know, we live in such a transient city because it's not just matters of faith. It's also what happens in community when things get hard. It's also what happens in marriages when things get hard. In vocations, when things get hard, we tend to say, I've had enough. What we really want is the meaning and deep intimacy that comes from being known and loved, but we often fail to spend enough time in any one place or with any one person long enough to go through the wilderness of vulnerability that it takes to be known and to commit to someone or something or some place. When that situation no longer personally benefits us, when it could actually do damage to our reputation, we're done. And we can even affirm that this is what happens. We can even affirm that this challenge is going to happen to us and yet be surprised when it does because it reveals the superficiality of our supposed faith or devotion to anyone or anything beyond ourselves. And it's challenging, but we have to be honest that this is our temptation. I was reminded this week um, of a lecture that uh, a guest preacher gave at Collective Church like probably five or six years ago. And he talked about four different stages of relationships or community. And he adapted it from this psychologist named M. Scott Peck. So M. Scott Peck says there are four different stages of community. First, there is pseudo community. In other words, the honeymoon phase of a community or relationship. There's the phase where we're being nice to each other and lying to each other about who we actually are because there's a version of ourselves that we're presenting, right? Second phase is chaos, when we're trying to change 
the other person. We're trying to, we're noticing the differences between us and others within a community and we're trying to manage those, distance, those differences superficially. The third stage is what he calls emptiness or has also been called nuclear winter. <laughs> How do you like that, right? It's here that people tend to give up, to give up on one another, to give up on a community, to give up on a job, anything, and to get rid of those relationships, to enter into new relationships or enter into a different community where these three stages will just start all over again. Or that person can choose to endure. The two members in the relationship can choose to get to know one another for the first time without agendas, without superficiality, without any guarantees, and start to work out these differences. And then, and only then, could you potentially get to the fourth stage, which is actual community, genuine relationships. All of us probably have stories or examples of relationships that kind of fell into these categories where you realize that by stage three, you're not really interested in moving past that or perhaps another person wasn't interested and so they left you. I can, I think of uh, two pr pretty painful examples of people that I thought were going to be side by side with me in ministry, following Jesus, telling other people about him for like the rest of our lives, like spiritual brothers, like truly closer than family. And not only are those people not in ministry anymore, they're not actually following Jesus anymore at all. We too have the opportunity of being examples of blessing and faithfulness and endurance like this guy Onesephorus or merely cautionary tales. And if you're here and you're just checking this whole Jesus thing out, happy Father's Day, we're glad you're here. <laughs> you can leave whenever you want, that's fine. This isn't a weird cult or anything, which is exactly what a weird cult would say, right? <laughs> this is specifically for followers of Jesus, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and are, are here because God is calling us to a higher standard of community life, of family life, higher than the shallow transactional and surface level relationships that are so stereotypical of our city. If we're not here for that, then what are we actually doing? If you have given up on a community when things get hard, it's possible that you haven't actually ever experienced true community before. Same goes for relationships. If, if you've given up on a relationship before going through that stage of nuclear winter, it's possible that true intimacy has always escaped you. As the author G.K. Chesterton said, uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So if Timothy is feeling pressure to distance himself from Paul or perhaps to give up on Jesus altogether as some of these other people have, what is he to do? He is to step into something. 
It's not enough just to not be ashamed. Paul also says to share in suffering. Rather than distancing ourselves from being identified as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as associated with Paul, what remains is to actually step into the fray. And a modern ad campaign for the Christian faith would probably only focus on the benefits of knowing God and following Jesus, but the Bible doesn't gloss over what it actually means to be associated with the name of Jesus. If you were in a, an ad, like an advertising room, and there was like a marketing campaign being drawn up for like what it means to follow Jesus, I think probably they would come up with something that looks a little bit more like Ned Flanders than the Apostle Paul, right? Like, I didn't lay ho, neighbor, everything's great over here. But the version of Christianity that gets purported in society that Christians somehow have everything all together and nothing ever goes wrong for them is completely false advertising. Following Jesus, as Paul would want us to know, involves risk, tension, and suffering. But none of this is a sign of Jesus's absence. In the darkest times, it's actually Jesus's presence and blessing is most evident in those times. In our society, we are possibly the worst equipped of any civilization at dealing with the problem of suffering. In Western civilization, we don't have the tools. Other societies, ancient civilizations, at least expected that suffering was going to happen. But in our society, if suffering is happening to you, it's because you did something wrong or you need to change your circumstances to get out of the situation so that you can mitigate the experience of suffering. We're driven by this compulsion to understand the world as meaningful, to make meaning out of negative experiences that we have as being for a reason, because if it's not, then we have no choice but saying then, then, then to say that suffering is meaningless. And a lack of understanding for people of faith often causes us to do more harm than good in assigning meaning to suffering. We grasp at meaning that leads to a lack of orientation to reality. And we can do significant damage to those around us when we offer a reason for suffering that is disconnected from reality. The most common conclusion that's drawn from a disoriented view of reality is that suffering is the result of something you did wrong and you are receiving just retribution on yourself. If you're in prison, it's because you're a criminal. If you're poor, it's because you haven't worked hard enough. If no one's listening to you and you're trying to be a leader and platform yourself, it's because you must be getting something wrong. And this very well might have been the false teaching that Paul was most concerned by because he knew that trying to get out of suffering, recoiling from difficulty, trying to change your circumstances so that you don't experience suffering at all is cancerous to spiritual growth. To believe that the experience of discomfort discouragement or suffering is evidence that you're doing something wrong 
is to misunderstand the story of the entire Bible. Without faith that there is more to life than what we can see and observe, our suffering does not actually have meaning. There is no inherent good in suffering. It doesn't just build character, right? You cannot find meaning in suffering if there is no transcendent reality. You can only have vague optimism or wishful thinking. And the author and psychologist Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the Holocaust and of the death camps, he did a study to determine what it was that allowed the people who survived death camps to actually persevere, to get onto the other side of that and to endure it with hope. And it was because they were basing their hope on some transcendent understanding of reality. That if anyone who was prisoners alongside him was placing hopes in something temporal and that thing was taken away, that person would completely lose their ability to endure the difficulty of their situation. There was one example that he gave where somebody had a dream that the camp was going to be liberated in a matter of weeks. And they were all hopeful, but that when that date came and went, that person suddenly, without explanation, became ill and passed away. His conclusion was that the survival of prisoners in these death camps of the Holocaust depended on their ability to have hope in something beyond life. So Paul clarifies why suffering. He doesn't say suffering is inherently good or meaningful or for its own sake. There is no inherent good in suffering and we should not seek it out or desire it, but we can't afford to recoil from it if our goal is to follow Jesus. The reason for our suffering matters. So Paul says the reason that he is suffering and the reason that Timothy should endure suffering is for the sake of the gospel. There are other philosophies that teach that suffering is inherently good because it builds character. Some teach that suffering is an illusion that we need to transcend through meditation. But if we suffer because we've made bad choices and put ourselves in a predicament where we are experiencing the repercussions of unwise decision, that is not the same thing as suffering for the sake of the gospel, right? Like Last week when I was busted for rolling through a stop sign while taking my kids to school and the cop pulls me over and gives me a ticket, that really happened. And no matter how hard I tried to plead with the cop, like, listen, man, I'm just in a hurry. I have these kids in the car. We're like, we're getting, we're, we're late to school. He's like, well, should have left earlier. <laughs> I was like, whoa, like, come on, man, my kids are in the car. You could just like, you could take it easy on me. You could like give me a warning or something like that. I thought I was being like the righteous one here coming up with all these reasons why this guy is just a sadistic jerk, right? But I had created the occasion for my suffering <laughs> by not following the rules, right? And I was actually, it really bothered me. It like almost ruined my entire day. And I was processing, I was praying about it later and God very gently nudges me and as, as almost as if to say, if you think you're suffering when you experience mild annoyances like this, you need to decide if you're actually prepared to endure real injustice for my sake. And that is what Paul is saying here. The endurance of suffering is not for silly things. It's for the sake 
of the gospel. Now, often we don't know the reason for our suffering and we don't know what brought it about. But in the same, in the same vein here, Paul is calling us to endure knowing that God is the one in charge. God is shaping our stories. He says we've been called to a holy calling. Some of you are experiencing incredibly difficult challenges simply by choosing to stay in Los Angeles right now when moving would have been so much easier. Like you wish you would have just gotten out of here at some other point during the pandemic. And that might feel like you're doing it for the right reasons, like you're here, you've decided to stay, but what is calling you to be here right now? We who are followers of Jesus actually need to do an audit on our choices to determine whether or not we are actually making these choices to follow Jesus or for some other reason. Is it the cultural benefits of living in the city? Is it friendship? Or is it out of actually obedience to God? Has God called you to be here? Or are you sticking it out for some other reason? Discovering our motivations and our intentions is not really that easy because our feelings about this constantly change. But if our decision to obey God and to follow Jesus is based on our comfort or our ease or our good feelings, then we have no basis to persevere when things actually get hard. If our goal in this life of living here in Los Angeles, following Jesus here, is to build our little kingdoms of comfort and self-actualization, and we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're actually enduring challenges for the right reason, but we're not, there's no blessing in that. The Apostle Peter says something very similar in a letter that he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, or when you run a red light and you get a ticket, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Paul says that if we endure hardship because we're actually saying yes to God, if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we have the promise of God's power. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Not for God to remove the cause of suffering, but to give us the power to endure it. Now, why? (laughs) Why should we endure? And this is where Paul is gonna give us really important instruction. There are three paradigm shifts that Paul gives us on why we need to endure suffering and shame. The first reason is God's purpose. If we are going to knowingly endure suffering and be potentially shamed by those we know for identifying with the person of Jesus, we're going to need to start seeing the experience of suffering in a fundamentally different way. And that is why Paul goes off on explaining the gospel message in verse nine. He says, God who saved us 
and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This purpose, God's purpose of redeeming, of saving us and calling us is something that is God's prerogative. And so if we are going to endure suffering and shame, it is not us who has to anxiously step into these situations. It is on God. God is the initiator and God will see it through. We can rest in the reality that it is not because of our works It's not because of our purposes, but because of God's own purpose and grace that he has called us to endure. It says that this is something that happened before the ages began. God saved and called us to endure before time itself began. God is the main character in the story of the gospel. He is the one who initiated And we can rest in the reality that God always finishes what he starts. We are not on the wrong side of history because history itself is in the hands of God. He began this work of saving before the world began and we can be sure that our part in it will not be to be put to shame because when standing for Jesus's name means we are guilty by association, we have nothing to fear because God has already dismantled the world's biggest problem. And our biggest problem with suffering is that it leads to death. And Jesus is the one who both abolished death and brought life. Okay, you see that? Jesus abolished death, which one author says, death is now unemployed. Okay, the very cause that the root cause of why we could potentially be shamed or experience suffering, what it could lead to is death. And Jesus has already dealt with that definitively through his death on the cross. And Paul says in verses 11 and 12, he says, this is the reason that he is suffering for this news, for the incredible goodness of God in calling us, in saving us, in redeeming us, in abolishing death. It's this news, this is the reason why I am suffering. The incredible goodness of God. He says, this is why I suffer as I do. Paul has the authority to make these statements because he has a clear conscience about why he is in prison. Rather than disobeying God's call, he's in prison because of God's mission. And our news feeds and our timelines are completely littered with stories of Christian leaders who have been disgraced by short-circuiting their own calling and avoiding suffering and giving in to temptation to take the easy road to ministry success and celebrity and influence. But Paul is an example of what happens when you refuse to compromise your integrity and you endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. From a purely rational perspective, from a human perspective, he's suffering simply because he needs a better PR guy, 
right? Like Paul, you need to learn how to present yourself better. Then you might not get in trouble with Rome and they'd learn to see you as actually a pretty decent guy. But he's saying that this is happening because of his call to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And he's not asking Timothy to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. He's not saying endure suffering out of a place of arrogance or pride or simply having more grit or determination, but he's saying anyone who chooses to identify with the person and the work of Jesus is going to have to count this cost. Later in the, later, in the letter of 2 Timothy, and we'll get to it in the coming weeks, he says in chapter three, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Happy Father's Day, <laughs> right? Let that sit with you, all. No one is exempt. So the first paradigm shift is that we don't have to be anxious about any of this because it is God's purpose. God's reputation is on the line, not ours. The second paradigm shift is that we are actually, in doing so, walking out the pattern of Jesus's life. Paul says in verse 12, I am not ashamed. Why? Why can Paul not be ashamed? Because I know whom I have believed. This is radical because Paul is offering a new reference point for understanding reality that is not based on glib optimism in the midst of suffering or wishful thinking. He's saying it's because I know Jesus. This word in the Greek is used of grasping a spiritual truth from a merely physical plane, an accurate assessment of what is really going on. So a right perception of our suffering of reality comes only from intimate personal knowledge of Jesus. And when we identify with Jesus, it means walking out the pattern that he has laid for us, knowing the pattern of his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. To the extent that we know him, we will also be shaped by this pattern. The truly spiritual response to suffering is to allow God to renew our minds to understand how God paradoxically uses all of the most challenging parts of our lives to shape us into the pattern of Jesus's life. It's not a meditation technique for escaping suffering. It's not a life hack for avoiding suffering. It is being woven into the pattern of Jesus's life. And I know I know this is hard to hear. I know when you think of the most challenging or painful thing that you have experienced or that you are currently experiencing to be told that this is being allowed by God for your good. But friends, this is exactly the gospel of Jesus. Jesus endured the most horrific and painful reality anyone could have ever experienced. And it was because of this because of his suffering and death, not in spite of it, that we can now be saved. We who trust in him can now experience this deep satisfaction of being forgiven, of being restored, of being loved by our creator who knows us better than we know ourselves and who invites us into that same mission so that others can experience his love. Now our pain and our difficulties become like little portals 
through which other people can experience the gospel story. In the martial art of judo, you use the weight of your opponent to defeat them. And just like that, in the gospel, God has used the power of death to defeat death itself. So now the weight of every single painful blow inflicted on us by the challenges of living in this world can be repurposed for blessing, for blessing others. For a disciple of Jesus, every experience of suffering is potentially meaningful. And it doesn't mean that every experience of suffering, you'll be given a cause and effect understanding of why or how it is going to be a blessing, but through faith, we can understand that with God, Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing is wasted. Some of you might feel like giving up because you're regretting choices that you've made. To say yes to step into a situation that's bringing suffering, whether that means staying in Los Angeles, saying no to a relationship or an opportunity, choosing to say yes to something that means sacrificial living, if that is a choice that you made out of obedience to Jesus, do not be ashamed of it. God has promised to be with you and to give you the power to endure. So the question for us is, like Paul, can we say that we, are not, we do not have to be ashamed because we know Jesus? That makes all the difference. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, maybe you've rejected the culturally constructed version of him presented to you by a church that avoids suffering. There is deep corrective work being done in the church right now by the Spirit of God because people are leaving the church in droves because of the lack of ability to understand our circumstances in light of a Jesus who suffered and died for us. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. When our experience doesn't align with reality, we need to understand the gospel of the God who entered into our suffering to endure it and to conquer it on our behalf. So, Paul's charge to Timothy and to us is to follow the pattern. This pattern is not a formulaic regurgitation of the gospel message, but a life and teaching that is consistent with the shape of Jesus and Paul's own life, which is that it is shaped like a cross. It is cruciform, a life shaped by risk and difficulty and incredible adventure. It's not boring. So the, third, the first two paradigm shifts are that it is God's purpose. The second, that it is Jesus' pattern of his life. And the third is that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit's presence with us. Paul says in verse 12, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul uses that word guard twice in this section and he uses it in two different ways that seem contradictory but are actually very complementary. 
He says he is convinced that God is able to guard what's been entrusted to him. And then he tells, Paul, he tells Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. So who's doing the guarding? Is it God or is it us? The answer is yes, right? Paul says, you have been given the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God now dwells within you because of Jesus's work of death and resurrection. We have the very presence of God dwelling within us. So it's not up to us. Once again, it is up to God to guard what he has entrusted to us. Paul is confident that God will be the one who allows us to endure. Even then, he still says it's our responsibility to say yes, to guard the deposit of what has been entrusted to us. Our confidence about being able to endure is because God endured on our behalf. His role as the originator of the story and the one who entered into it to suffer proves to our hearts that he is the one who will also see it through. And we can strengthen ourselves in this confidence because the Holy Spirit, the very guarantee, the down payment that God will finish what he started now dwells within us. And he's gonna get more specific throughout the letter of 2 Timothy about what this guarding is to look like. He's already told us to fan into flame the calling that we've been given, to not be ashamed, to have a paradigm shift about what suffering looks like. But then he's also gonna say, flee youthful passions. Do not engage in foolish controversies. Endure people's junk. (laughs) Gently correct people and also immerse yourself in the story of scripture. This is what it takes to endure, to be, to understand that in suffering, we can have these three completely upside down ways of viewing it, that it is God's purpose, that it is Jesus's pattern, and that God's very presence is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the last series that we went through that called Peculiar, we, we saw many different ways that following Jesus could put us out of step with the culture around us to the point of persecution. And that nothing, potentially, nothing we can say or do can persuade those around us that we care about, family, coworkers, or friends, from thinking that we are some backwards religious fanatics on the wrong side of history And just like Timothy is tempted to be ashamed and to give up, Paul is encouraging us, do not be ashamed. Where would we go? There's a scene in the gospels where Jesus is being followed by thousands and thousands of people because he's just done a miracle to feed them. Uh, Just like the Israelites were fed with manna in the wilderness miraculously, there were people that were only following Jesus because of what he could do for them. And then Jesus said something very confusing to them. He said, you have to actually eat my body and drink my blood if you wanna be associated with me. And people were not saying, oh yeah, communion, I get it. (laughs) It says in John chapter six, verse 66, after this, after he said that, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples, 
turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, his 12 disciples who were closer, he said, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We think there's a better church out there that will meet our needs. There's another city out there where it'll be easier to raise a family, a better job where we can work remote and do whatever we wanna do during the day. Guess what? There is. But what is God calling you to? Share in suffering, do not be ashamed. Guard your faith by the power of the Spirit. Why? Because only he has the words of eternal life. This reality is illustrated better than I think pretty much anywhere else by um, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Silver Chair in the Narnia series. Um, There's a girl named Jill who's dying of thirst. She's just entered into Narnia and she meets a lion. And the lion says, are you not thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Where else will we go? The God who asks you to endure suffering, it's not because he's sadistic and he likes it. The suffering is a result of living in a Jesus-shaped way in the face of a world system that operates in opposition to the goodness of God. Suffering is the result of following a God who overcame the power structures of the world, not through power and coercion, but in giving his life away through sacrificial love. That is the God we serve. There is no other stream. Let's pray.